nice and close and I'll do it very intimately. 17 miles from halfway, Oxbow at Oxbow Dam, here was the site of Wicked Copperfield, whose sinfulness prompted Governor Oswald West in 1914 to send out an invasion force of six men and led by the governor's private secretary, Miss Fern Hobbs. The saloons were shut down, and a few months later, Copperfield burned to the ground and was never rebuilt. Trailer camping nearby. Whence comes the necessity for seizing the reins of government by civil procedure and substituting therefore law by rifle and sword? The Malheur Enterprise. It is January 1914, and Oswald West is still an asshole. This is some kick-ass Oregon history. Welcome to another installment of Kick-Ass Oregon History, a survey created by the geeked out history folks at orhistory.com. I'm your host, Andy Lindbergh, and under the guidance of resident historian Doug Kent Crispin, we profile only the most badass, captivating Oregon stories. It's all Oregon sex, drugs, rock and roll, and earth-shattering, devastating destruction basically the good stuff Nineteen hundred found a bunch of burly prospectors engaged on the Snake River. No, not engaged in a gay marriage sort of way, though that would have been pretty awesome. No, they were engaged doing what prospectors do, looking for shiny stuff. In 1910, there were about a thousand of them there, mining, some having done railroad work, and so formed the little town of Copperfield a big boon to far-flung Baker County. Portland State University graduate student Daniel Shepard, who is writing his master's thesis on the little town of Copperfield, gives us an introduction. So the dream for the town of Copperfield comes to life in 1907. Uh, situated at the oxbow of the Snake River, the future town site of Copperfield offered a profitable opportunity to speculators in Oregon's frontier. The town was ideally situated along the future Huntington, Lewiston rail line and a dam project that would generate electricity for the town. The potential for not only agriculture along the Snake, but also industry following the completion of a rail line and plentiful power source were portents of the town's future prosperity. 
Copperfield's initial success lay in meeting the needs of the nearly 2,500 workers who came to work on the railroad and dam projects. At the height of this construction boom, Copperfield boasted numerous respectable establishments, including a, ju a jewelry store, drugstore, a three-story hotel, a post office, a school, and even a bathhouse. It had two tent hospitals, a state-of-the-art sewer system for the time, a cement reservoir, and pressurized water for its fire department. However, with the money brought into town by the largely single and very tired construction workers, Copperfield could also more than meet the unsavory needs of the workers, with 14 saloons, 13 brothels, and two dance halls. The saloons and brothels were open 24-7 to match the 24-7 schedule of the construction projects. It was no surprise, therefore, that Copperfield gained a reputation as a wild frontier town where drinking, prostitution, gambling, and brawling were to be expected. Indeed, it was an unruly place, and was once considered to be openly violating every law in the land. There were reportedly daily shootings. There was a saloon with 21 separate gambling tables, and there was almost no form of policing at all. It was not uncommon to see a dozen fights on the street or drunken men passed out in the snow. As years passed by, and with mining and railroad projects having mostly run their course, Copperfield was down to about 80 residents or so. It was still an open town, and while some sin-steeped activities were still taking place there, it was also very isolated geographically, and the officials in Baker County just kind of let it be. Policing was difficult, as criminals would just cross the Snake River into Idaho to evade Oregon authorities, or the reverse to run from the Idaho fuzz. And so, shady happenings were soon going on in Copperfield. A war between saloon owners soon started up and would have disastrous results for the citizens of Copperfield and indeed the state of Oregon. Again, historian Daniel Shepard. On one side, you had Henry Stewart and Tony Warner allied with William Wigand to drive out uh, Martin Nesovich. Their plan was simple. They incorporated the town of Copperfield and in the resulting elections took control of the city council. Henry Stewart became mayor, Warner and Wigan became council members, and Wigan the bartender became a third council member. Uh, with control of the city council, the Wigan Stewart faction made the first acts to issue liquor licenses to their saloons while denying them to Nesovich. Uh, Accusations were made to the governor's office that the saloon and gambling operators, who also happened to be the council members of the small town, had taken things to new levels of lawlessness and debauchery. Citizens were supposedly indignant. In a letter to Governor West, which was printed in the papers across the state, one citizen wrote, The mayor lives in an old abandoned house with an old saloon in connection. He gives Saturday night dances and takes liquor on in his sitting room. Sells it out to men and boys attending the dances. Sells and gives away liquor to minors. Runs open Sundays. Sells liquor to habitual drunkards after their wives have served written notice to him to stop. The trouble has got into our school. I have a wife and six children, three boys growing into manhood. Liquor is constantly before them, and I ask on behalf of the citizens of Copperfield to have the saloons closed. 
with such a coarse and crude cabal in control of Cozy Copperfield, something had to be done. I mean done. But others actually involved in the Copperfield incident claimed it was much more petty than the governor was led to believe. Believe me, I'm not in this scrap. The trouble is all over a Greek. A fellow by the name of Martin Knezevich, by some accounts a Montenegrin, was running a successful saloon. His bar was quite popular with the cattlemen, and they flocked to the place. One day, his prosperous concern was set on fire, likely by an incendiary, or what we today call an arsonist. So Knezevich decided to move to a different location within Tiny Copperfield. Lo and behold, his business did even better. And now he was the closest bar to many of the farmers on their way into town. This pissed off the establishment taverns owned and operated by the civic leaders, and they fined Knezevich for being outside the established Copperfield saloon zone. Knezevich refused to pay the bullshit fine, so the city marshal attempted to arrest him, and in the process, beat Knezevich over the head with his handgun. The pissed-off and pistol-whipped saloon owner sued the officials of Copperfield, but he lost in court. November 14, 1913, saw Knezevich's saloon in flames again, but also the Stuart Wigan saloon was in flames as well. Both parties claimed innocence and said that others set their own saloon ablaze as a ruse. As the Pendleton paper put it, District Attorney Godwin of Baker County came to Copperfield, but after listening to the contradictory stories, threw his hands up and said he would prosecute if anyone would bring him a believable story with a witness to swear to it. But Knezevich wasn't done yet. The Greek and some of his friends got up the petition to the governor that was in the papers, stating the conditions of the town. If he had been left alone to do as he wanted to do, he would have had no kick coming. The whole thing is nothing but spite work. A big family quarrel. Pouty saloon operators who just couldn't get along, man. These were the sparks that set the blaze of the Copperfield incident. There were some reports of some pretty indecent activity, including selling booze to minors. Several boys, aged 14 to 18, said they were allowed to purchase beer and alcohol whenever they wished. 
including Sundays. One claimed that he had taken $2.50 from his mother and blown all of the dough on games of chance and slot machines and then gotten drunk in the mayor's saloon. Governor Oz West was pissed. Governor West telegraphed Baker County Sheriff Rand with the following. The information received indicates the town of Copperfield in your county is in control of organized vice and that law-abiding citizens are without due protection of the law. Common decency and the interest of the taxpayers demand that this condition of affairs forever cease, and in order that there may be no delay in the enforcing of the law and preventing further breaches of the peace, you are hereby directed to close at once and keep closed until further notice all saloons and other places in said town where intoxicating liquors are sold. And, of course, nothing happened. It's a long way from Salem to Copperfield. Why, Copperfield is practically in Idaho. Governor West decided he needed to do something proactive, so he took the next logical step. He sent his private secretary to clean up this vice-filled community. You know, like you do. attorney and the sheriff of the county having reported to me that they cannot do it, I shall send my private secretary, Miss Fern Hobbs, to Copperfield to close down the saloons. If these men who are sworn to enforce the law and have the great arm of the law back of them can't close the saloons, we shall see what a woman can do. Described as a frail-appearing woman, Hobbs was hired by Governor West to be his chief clerk. While working in this capacity, Hobbs graduated from Willamette University's law school in 1913. West then promoted her to be his private secretary, a post usually reserved for men. She was paid $3,000 a year, which at the time was the highest salary of any woman in the nation who served in a public capacity. News of the governor's diminutive female assistant traveling across the state to shut down these brigand desert saloons had our state, indeed the nation, in fucking stitches.
and Miss Hobbs seemed just to roll with it. An Oregonian reporter caught up with her at the station as she was about to board the train to Baker. He asked Miss Hobbs, Are you armed? Hobbs replied, Armed? Well, yes, I am. I have a dressing bag, a portfolio, and an umbrella. I don't believe I could do much damage with these. Do I look like Carry Nation to you? Carry Nation was the heavyweight, heavy hitter of the temperance movement. She felt that she was divinely ordained to help ban drunkenness. Standing six foot tall and 180 pounds, Ms. Nation carried with her a hatchet. She would go into a bar and just start smashing shit. She was arrested 30 times for leading her female followers into various saloons, and with a cry of, Smash, ladies! Smash! She and the ladies would proceed to fuck shit up. When Miss Nation came into the boxer John Sullivan's place in New York City, the fighter reportedly fled and hid. Copperfield was big fucking press, and West may have been using Fern Hobbs' gender for political benefit. In an era when most American women still toiled in domestic positions, this mission was outlandish. Remember, national suffrage was not passed until 1920. Oregon's women had only had the right to vote for a little over a year, so this was novel, new stuff, and the papers fed off of it. And Copperfield did too. The town thought it was hilarious. The big bad governor, all the way in Salem, sending his five foot four inch, less than a hundred pound bookish secretary to clean up their naughty, filthy act. A royal reception was to greet Miss Hobbs upon her train arriving. Copperfield saloons were reported to be adorned in pink and blue ribbons with cut flowers at all of the bars. Governor West, as you might have guessed, was not fucking impressed. Miss Fern Hobbs, my private secretary, will arrive in Copperfield at 3.50 tomorrow and the saloons will be closed within an hour. Miss Hobbs will only have to remain in town only one hour to accomplish the task to which she has been assigned. She will close the booze palaces 
and close them tight before she leaves. All this talk emanating from Copperfield about flowers, the decoration of saloons, etc., is appropriate for the occasion. Flowers usually are in order when the last sad rites are to be performed. I have no objection to the saloons of Copperfield being appropriately decorated for this particular occasion. But beneath the hilarity, tensions ran high. There were rumors of armed resistance in greeting the governor's envoy. West, sitting in Salem, was plotting, scheming, and fuming. What more can we do? To the world, our erratic and foolish satrap holds us all alike to scorn and sends word throughout our fair land that the laws of Oregon can only be enforced through the powers of the military. Malheur Enterprise. January 2nd, 1914, 2.30 p.m. Hobbs arrives at the Copperfield Station to find most of the town awaiting her arrival. At 3.50, she boarded the train back to Baker. It was all done in little more than an hour. Miss Hobbs stated, that when her train steamed into Copperfield, she was met by the mayor, who escorted her to a dance hall that was to be used to address the throng. It was raining, so he held an umbrella over her as they walked. Miss Hobbs stated that the mayor was really very nice. Hobbs quickly assembled the members of the Copperfield City Council and read Governor West's address to them, which demanded their resignations. Mayor Stewart declared to Miss Hobbs that the city officials had been duly elected and that the saloons were operated under state license and that no legal injunctions had attempted to revoke those licenses or to censure the saloon owners. This is an important detail to our tale. In the eyes of many in Baker County and Eastern Oregon proper, established legal procedures had not been initiated. Now, to say that Miss Fern Hobbs closed down Copperfield is a little incorrect. Accompanying her on the train to Copperfield was a small detachment of Oregon National Guard troops reported to be crack shots all. Led by Lieutenant Colonel C.K. Lawson of the Oregon State Penitentiary and carrying loaded rifles at the ready, the militiamen meant business. Colonel Lawson next addressed the assembly, which by this time also included about all of the 80 or so Copperfield residents. He read the proclamation of martial law, which he brought with him from Salem. All of the citizens of Copperfield were ordered to disarm, and a search of the inhabitants present found that nearly everyone was fully armed. 
63 firearms were collected, and after the rest of the town was also searched, an arsenal of over 200 guns was confiscated. But Colonel Lawson and his merry militiamen weren't done yet. All the saloons were closed. Every drop of intoxicating liquid was commandeered. The councilmen were arrested and denied access to legal counsel. The liquor and the bar fixtures were to be sent by train to Baker to be held in confiscation along with the cards, the dice, the slot machines, three roulette wheels, and a Monty layout. Governor Oswald West had suspended constitutional rights as well as due process. He was running the show, not those five or six two-bit hustlers who were on the Copperfield City Council. Miss Hobbs left after an hour in Copperfield. The militia stayed on and were reinforced by more soldiers a few days later. Once all the guffawing about this little woman closing down the saloons had died down across the state, some opposition to the governor's actions was voiced. Martial law, in effect, sets aside the constitutional guarantee of the people affected. Surely there are laws definitively regulating its use. If not, there ought to be. Such a use of it as there was at Copperfield strikes at the very fundamentals of a government of the people, by the people, and for the people, and is an illegitimate use of the power. If he's such a weakling, that he finds no other means than martial law in the time of peace to close up body houses and saloons. He has no place as an executive. Who put this prince on the throne and gave him the power of life and death or the right to confiscate property? Any other governors of this state in the exercise of their executive discretion never saw fit to declare martial law. Upon what basis and upon what theory and for what reason can Governor West declare martial law in the little town of Copperfield, which cast 32 votes in the last city election? Upon what theory can the distinguished governor of the great state of Oregon become a party to a petty row between two petty factions and proclaim martial law? Even the Oregonian weighed in. Martial law is a most dangerous and unwarrantable exercise of power. It is a grave thing to suspend civil authority. It is an unheard of proceeding anywhere in any civilized government except in times of rebellion or great public peril. No such situation exists anywhere in Oregon. No judicial decision has yet been given as to the necessity of invoking martial law to suppress a half-dozen gamblers. The end is not yet. Malheur Enterprise. So, why did he do it? And why did he send Fern Hobbs to do his dirty work? Some say he did it to gain recognition for a U.S. Senate race, a race that Oz never ended up participating in. Historian Daniel Shepard has some thoughts as well. This particular period is uh, fascinating in Oregon's history, largely because a lot of uh, stuff politically is happening. Um, women had just gotten the vote in Oregon. I believe it was 1912, actually. Um, 
the temperance movement was making a huge push towards prohibition, and as we see in 1914, they eventually succeed. Um, so some ideas put forth by some of the papers um, saw it as something of a political stunt, sending a, a woman to kind of go and, uh, I guess, teach these rough frontiersmen how things are supposed to be done. So in some sense, there was, uh, I guess, that uh, perception behind it in other instances, she was clearly a capable woman since she had no trouble um, standing in front of a crowd of frontiersmen and saloon keepers and demanding resignations from them. Or maybe, just maybe, maybe our beloved Governor Oswald West was just kind of an asshole. Oz defended his actions and showed us once again that he was indeed kind of an asshole. What made me sore? especially, was being played for a sucker by the district attorney of Baker. I didn't go to Copperfield to suspend the laws, but because I found that the laws were being suspended by a bunch of cutthroats. I sent the young lady because when she goes to perform a mission, she always performs it. Her work is a good lesson to the fellow who comes back with an excuse instead of doing what he is sent to do. I think capital punishment should be reserved alone for the man who brings back an excuse. I didn't decide to send the militia until I read in the paper that they were getting gay up there and decorating their bars with ribbons and flowers. Then I decided we might just as well use the flowers at the funeral and sent Colonel Lawson and four or five militiamen up. Why didn't I go at it through the courts? Because the Constitution gives me ample powers to go about it the way that I did use. And I am a great fellow for shortcuts. I believe if you think, damn it, you should say, damn it. But maybe the Malheur Enterprise summed it up best when they editorialized. Probably no statement will ever be made as to the cost of the Copperfield War. War it is, and will go down in the annals of the state of Oregon, that a governor of a great commonwealth, for political purposes only, cast shame and disgrace over her fair name in order to suppress a few stubborn gamblers. Ultimately, martial law is removed in January 19, 1915, a little over a year after it was declared. However, it is little consolation to the saloon keepers after the state of Oregon had voted for prohibition in November 1914 ballot. That might be the end of Copperfield's strange story, except it is the victim of a suspected arson later that year that destroys nearly the entire business district. So, beginning with so much promise and experiencing rapid growth and development, Copperfield burns out, quite literally, in a few short years after its inception. So Andy, we're here at um, Copperfield Camp. Cap Copperfield Campground run by Idaho Power and Light. But we're in Oregon. Bring. Yes, we are. Although the GPS doesn't seem to know if we're in Oregon or not. Yeah, on the twatter it says we're in Idaho. Yeah, well. Copperfield Campground. Mm -hmm. What do you think of it? I think it kind of fucking sucks. I've, I've camped it worse. <laughs> I have to say, and I'm not surprised when, when all of the old timers like, oh yeah, that Idaho power and light, they run a smooth ship over there. That place is pristine. What that told me was well-paved 
and good water pressure. I, I uh, equated it to waxed. Yes, yes. It is the Brazilian of campsites. Just a wee little strip of trees. Yes, exactly. There is, there is not a hair on the Copperfields bunghole. Idaho Power built three high dams on the Snake River. Brownlee Dam in 1959, Oxbow in 61, and Hills Canyon Dam in 1967. So in trade for this ecological rapery, we get Copperfield Park, which is one of the four parks run by Idaho Power in Hells Canyon. It's located right on the western bank of the Snake River, in view of the Oxbow Dam, just about as far as you can get in Oregon and still be in Oregon. With 10 tent sites and 62 RV hookups, let's just be polite and say that Copperfield Park is quite groomed. There's nothing remaining of the sin-steep town. In 1915, a huge fire took out much of it. Another one, two years later, took out everything except for the post office and the schoolhouse. Even in 1959, when Fern Hobbs revisited the site, she couldn't find anything that indicated that a town once stood at the site. Copperfield is kind of a shitty little place, and visiting it now, I can see why the folks that hung on through the boom and the bust might want to drink and gamble and whore around some, blow that fucking hard-earned dough, have a little fun. It's a hot place deep in a crevice between the high rock walls, hardly a fucking tree to be seen. Those old-timey men performed hard labor in this dusty place. It's called Hell's Canyon for a reason. And yes, a handful of saloon men and gamblers had taken the town over. They cooked the city's books. It was something like organized crime, albeit on a tiny and very isolated scale. And something needed to be done to stop it, or to at least rein it in. But the names of these saloons, the Oxbow, White Front Saloon, and Owl Saloon, should be recalled as venerated establishments in our state's history. Battle sites that tested the power of the citizens against the totalitarianism of the executive branch. And while the citizens obviously lost this engagement on the snake, Ultimately, the historic skirmish provides us with a useful case study to consider for the future. Oswald West suspending constitutional rights, due process of the law, and common fucking civil respect was not right. As we listen to his own words, it seems as if he was personally scorned in the unfolding of the affair, and it became his claim crusade to close down Copperfield. He was going to show his citizens that you do not fuck with Oz, baby. Not when he has the might of the Oregon National Guard behind him. And yes, a power he will yield, even for something as petty as a squabble between a few two-bit saloon men in the furthest flung corner of the state of Oregon. Thank you for listening, Ass Kickers. 
and be on the lookout for future podcasts from ORHistory.com. We hope that you agree that this episode featured some kick-ass Oregon history. Today's podcast was written, recorded, edited, and produced by Doug Kank Crispin and Andy Lindbergh. Citations are available on request. Kick-Ass Oregon History is on Twitter at Oregon underscore history. We're also on the Facebook. The email address is OregonHistorian at gmail.com. Want more Kick-Ass Oregon History in your life? Learn more at ORHistory.com. Just don't get too close to Mr. Kank Crispin, or he'll send his daughter Molly to declare martial law on your ass. You stay historic, Oregon, and kick ass. so glad that they were spraying the poison so close to us. Yes, yes. Well, of course, we have foiled them by being up early enough in the morning to to see them spraying the poison. You know, there's not a fucking weed out there in that green field that they water all day. No, it's incredible. From somebody, it looks like they have an, like an inversion chair over there, like that you hang yourself up to like stretch your back. What the hell is that? Are you sure it isn't like some BDSM well, contraption? Well, it could be. I mean, they've got... In, looks the, in the trailer. They've got the intent for MASH set up over there. Next to their RV. Next to their RV. podcast was produced as part of our summer 2014 road trip. Thanks and apologies to our generous supporters. One, two, three. Greg Applegate. Rustiro Roasters. Tori Zamzalari. Bill Lanchester.
Tony Tanzai. Austin Coop. Marilyn Lindbergh. Alex Ward. Eric White. Doug Halloway. Joshua Fisher. Jim Corville. Roman Mars. Emily Ross Johnson. Dan Zalko. Don Chiselson. Lizzie Katzen. Beverly Schoonover. Jim Keyes. Brock Didis. Allison Carter. Tristan Lemons. Dallying Daly. Robert Crispin. Carol Foster. John Adyler. Louis Salloway. Rebecca Woodsmith. Heather Gogan. John Quill Lee Master. Peter Lindbergh. Mike Vogel. Dave Lindbergh. Gary Lindbergh. William Reagan. Tammy Parr. Todd Dixon. Heather Arnett Anderson. Peter Archer. Sawdust Tops. Is that really it? Where's Mike motherfucking Wyatt? That's his actual name. (laughs) (laughs) And Mike motherfucking Wyatt. orhistory.com